Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books, and check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. And as you say, all, all those decisions um, and your values, they influence the care and the treatment you have throughout your whole illness journey. And mm -hmm. you mentioned about healthcare campaigns as well. How fantastic. So when we have our, um, our breast screening, when we have prostate, whatever we have, mm -hmm. how fantastic would it be? Oh, what have you done for your advanced care planning? Is there anything we need mm -hmm. to talk about? That was Claire Fuller, a registered nurse in the UK with a passion for advanced care planning. Claire owns Speak For Me, a lasting power of attorney consulting service. In this episode, we discuss what she's learned from hosting her podcast called Conversations About Advanced Care and some of the tools she's developed to support people to plan for the future. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to meet you guys again. And congratulations on the release of your book. And I am so looking forward to reading it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Maybe you can tell our listeners like what it is that you do currently. Like what is your role? Yeah. Um, so, and to be honest, I'm still working on my elevator pitch. So this is a long elevator pitch. But my background is in palliative and end of life care. And that's 30 years, 30 years in the making. And quite unusually, I've worked across all the different sectors um, so I started off in a hospice, hugely proud hospice nurse, a specialist nurse. And um, I then moved into the generalist setting. And we were talking a little bit um, off air as well. And at that point, I realised the importance of taking palliative care and end of life care into the general setting, because the vast majority of people, and I Sammy be nodding, will die in a generalist setting, not under the care of a hospice. Um, Within that role, I also um, completed my MSc. Um, I spent a bit of time with a company called the Gold Standards Framework in the UK. Um, and that was when they were delivering their hospital program about recognition of the last year of life and implementing advanced care planning. So all of those different sort of nubs I took and then developed my own company. Um, I had the honor of being able to do this when the children left home. So I'm, to answer your question, um, I now call myself um, an educator, advocate and coach for advanced care planning. Um, I set up to help organizations improve advanced care planning and end of life care to educate the public. Um, and I also do something called lasting power of attorney or proxy decision-making, I think, I don't know what you call it in Canada, but I'm a lasting power of attorney consultant as well, which mm. has been a really fascinating journey. You know, you, you start on a journey and you think, yeah, I know about um, lasting power of attorney. But the more I delve into it, the more court cases I attend, the more I go to the court of protection, the more challenges I learn, um, the more I learn what there is to learn about that fascinating role. Mm -hmm. So the, that's the long answer. The short answer mm -hmm. is I'm passionate about all things advanced care planning. Mm -hmm. What an important topic. If we did that piece better, oh my goodness, we would save people so many um, you know, treatment decisions Gosh. that they look back on and think, I wish I didn't do that. Um, and the heartbreak of people having to make decisions Absolutely. on behalf of someone uh, is really difficult. Yeah. So thank you for that amazing work. My pleasure. I, 
I think I'm so passionate, Sammy, because I've seen time and time and time again where decisions are left too late. Yeah. And um, we get we attend things called mortality reviews in, in England, mm-hmm. in the UK, where we can look mm-hmm. back and reflect what did we do mm-hmm. well, what did we do mm-hmm. badly. And time and time and time again, we'd review the fact that we recognise somebody was dying 24 mm-hmm. hours ahead of time, mm-hmm. 48 yeah. hours ahead of time. And this could be a 92-year-old person mm-hmm. with a fractured neck of femur. This is no surprise. We're mm-hmm. just not recognising it. And as you say, acting upon somebody's wishes. So... Lots of catalysts have driven me to where I am now. And Claire, I think, I mean, a lot of these stories you've recorded in your own Mm -hmm. podcast, right? Speak for me, which our listeners can find Mm -hmm. on all the platforms as well. And tell us a little bit about that journey of the podcast that's really focused on um, people's stories, good and not so good, uh, where they didn't not necessarily, and maybe might have missed some chances to do advanced care planning. Yeah, thank you. Um, That's a really lovely question to answer. So thank you for asking that one. That's a a joy to answer so that podcast started with the most incredible lady called Claire Fisher. Um, Claire was a very young lady in her 30s who was diagnosed with an unexpected bowel cancer whilst working I believe she was working abroad potentially the Cayman Islands. This was an absolute shocking and sudden diagnosis. Um, Claire Claire's job happened to be a public policy professional and she was very very interested in well-being Um, Claire was palliative, Um, Claire was non-curative from the point of diagnosis and she set about what she called her retirement mission Um, and that was if I remember correctly to um, improve discussion around advanced care planning very very close to my heart um, and to encourage early access palliative care and to break down that those scary barriers that I know you talk about a lot on your podcast. Mm -hmm. So Claire was very, very, very much a planner. She was meticulous, she was methodical, and she was organised. Claire had three children and two twins, and towards the end of her life, Claire was admitted to a hospital and in an intensive care unit. And this will be a story that will be familiar to to you both as well. And all Claire wanted was to go home. This was going to be her last Christmas with the twins. There was one of the children's birthdays coming up. She knew she wasn't going to get better. She just wanted to be at home um, to die and to spend the remaining Christmas with her children. And she sent out a tweet saying that she was stuck in hospital, if you like. She, she couldn't get out. She was stuck in intensive care and she couldn't get her wishes heard. And I'd already connected with Claire and I thought, my goodness me, if somebody as high profile as Claire, if somebody who planned as well as Claire, if somebody had all her ducks in a row, as we would say, all her planning in order, all her paperwork done, all the discussions done, if she had that shout out, how much harder can you imagine it would be for everybody else? So I'd worked with Claire in the past on a couple of projects, projects which was fantastic. Um, I responded to that tweet and said, Claire, you know, look, would, would you be happy to share your story? And it was such a privilege um, just to talk with Claire three weeks before she died. Um, and we shared her story just to start raising awareness. And Claire coined the phrase, this is an important conversation about inc- important conversations, which I love. So that was the very first podcast. And um, I know I'm talking to podcast aficionados here with, with you and Sammy. But oh, my goodness, getting that first release out was t- tricky. I didn't know about podcast podcast platforms. I didn't know about all the editing. It was a real race to the finish line to get that one out and a huge learning curve. Anyhow. The episode was released and from that we are now, I think, approaching 61 episodes down. 
And each episode aims to show a different element of advanced care planning because people tend to think it's a piece of paper, it's mm -hmm. a one-off event, and mm -hmm. you can tick it off. Yay, we've done mm -hmm. advanced care planning. Mm -hmm. So each conversation I try to show, this is a different element of advanced care planning. It may be, um, I spoke with an incredible lady, Vicky, about her daughter's organ donation. Mm -hmm. um, it may be about advanced decision to refuse treatment. So each episode focuses on a very, very specific issue. And as you write, Jan, there are many, many stories within there. So I learn through each of them. It's, it's a real privilege to do absolute privilege you know that's amazing you've done so many episodes um congratulations to you <laughs> it's hard yeah. work thank you especially on one topic but as you mentioned yeah. before it's a complicated topic you know yeah. Claire I I remember when I went uh, to see our lawyer with my husband mm -hmm. and uh, he said to me and said to my husband, okay, tick box mm. style. Do you want yeah. a feeding tube? Do you want this? <laughs> yeah. Do you want this? Do you want like yeah. all these procedures or interventions? Yeah. And yeah. my husband's like, no, no, yes, no, no. Like easy for him to answer. And then he got to me and I said, it depends. Yeah, yeah it yeah. depends. And he's like, well, there's no tick box for that. It's either yes or no. I yeah. said, well, actually it's not yes or no. Yeah. Um, I think it's more important for my husband to know what I value so that Absolutely. if there is a future time that he needs to make a decision on my behalf about one of these interventions, yeah. that he can use my values and things that are yeah. important to me and what I wouldn't trade off or would trade off yeah. to make the decision in yeah. the time that it is relevant. Yeah. And the lawyer and my husband looked <laughs> at me like, okay, who brought her? I mean, it is a yes or no. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's those nuances that are absolutely lost on forms, aren't they? Um, I, I spoke with the, the delightful Andrew Saunderson about joy lists and learned so much from my guest. So as part of doing the podcast, it's made me do my own advanced care planning because it's no good me sitting here and talking in front of my microphone once a week and not enacting. As a, hip as a hypocrite. <laughs> as a hypocrite. And a really big shift, I think, in in my thinking, touches upon what you're saying, Sammy, and I'd associate it with what we would call an advanced statement of wishes and preferences. So the things that bring you joy, the things that give you value, the things that give you meaning, mm -hmm. I'd associated that with something potentially towards the end of life. But I've really upstreamed that. So I've done my own advanced statement mm -hmm. because for me, what brings me joy, my wishes, my values, that underpins the decision-making between behind all my advanced care planning. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. I have done an advanced decision to refuse treatment, which in, in the UK is a legal document. Mm -hmm. But through doing that, I made jolly sure that I'd done an, a, an advanced statement of my wishes and preferences, because that's that fleshes out and that explains why I've made the decisions I've made. And should attorneys in my advance, yep, sorry, in my lasting power of attorney need to make decisions, I've not documented them on that form. I've just given people the autonomy to speak for me. Well, they'll know my wishes and values. So it's the podcast has also helped me immensely with my own advanced care planning, I'd say. You know, as I'm listening to Claire and um, we have listeners from all over, um, I guess I would just, um, it reminds me that every country, every province, yeah. every state, every, you know, has a different set of terms and oh uh, forms and 
paperwork and whether or not this needs to be notarized or not notarized. Like there are, you really need for the listeners need to learn what is um, applicable for yeah. your own country that you live in. Um, but there are some um, common threads uh, for all of us, right? This idea that hopefully before you're ever in a pickle with uh, needing to make a health decision, that you have discussions with the people who are closest to yeah. you, hopefully one of them being your, we call it substitute decision maker or substitute decision maker with power of attorney. Um, some people call it a proxy, whatever you know, people call it, that that person knows you well enough that if they're ever in a position in the future yeah. standing there needing to make a medical decision on your behalf, that they can do that for you because they know you, not what they would want yeah. for themselves or what they would want for you, regardless of what we call the papers and the and the documents and the forms, that the essence of it is yeah. that these conversations happen, hopefully in a timely enough manner, multiple times uh, over a lifespan as just normal conversation so that, um, you're covered if you ever run into a snag and you can't answer for yourself. Um, I think that's one important common yeah. thread. Do you, are there other important common threads do you think? Yeah, I'm really interested that you said that and I wanted to reflect back and, and I think you said about, or you highlighted the differences between countries and it goes further than that as well, which exacerbates the confusion and was another driver for me to do my role as well. So if we just take the UK or if we even just take England mm -hmm. and we look at towns abutting to towns and hospitals mm -hmm. abutting to hospices, yeah. within a five mile radius, we can have multiple forms. So yeah. for healthcare professionals, it's a muddle and a pickle in their heads. For members mm -hmm. of the public, that they, that there's no common language mm -hmm. for, the, for the healthcare professionals. Um, for transporting documents across systems, mm -hmm. for interoperability, and that adds to the confusion. So I like mm -hmm. how you draw it down to, to, to basic principles. Mm -hmm. So the way that I try and shape advanced care planning is that we have, um, and it's everything that you're saying, Sammy, we have mm -hmm. what matters most as the foundation. Mm -hmm. And then from what matters most, there are the mm -hmm. common themes, I would argue, of the things that mm -hmm. you do want. So we would include an advanced statement of wishes and preferences or joyless mm -hmm. values mm -hmm. we have things that you don't want that's another thread and it, wherever you live because it's going to be a different form but if you know mm -hmm. the the concept mm -hmm. so what you don't want an advanced decision to refuse treatment um you have who would speak for you or a substitute mm -hmm. decision maker as another mm -hmm. element and then finally you have um, your legacy as well we touch on mm -hmm. digital mm -hmm. so i try and come from advanced care planning is almost forgetting those forms as you say, mm -hmm. it's not the forms, it's yeah. the conversations. Yeah. Have yeah. a foundation of conversation. Mm -hmm. And then no matter what area you're in, you're going to have to work out what forms to use. And to be yeah. honest, it, it frustrates me immensely that we don't have a national repository or a national language or a mm. national system to share this, this mm -hmm. key information. And, you know, in um, making it more complicated is that if this isn't done and you end up later in life in a crisis, um, the flip side is that most clinicians, I'll just speak on behalf of doctors, 
are going to tend to want to do something. You are more likely to get an intervention than the person sit there in a crisis and say, well, let's weigh the pros and cons of of not having this done because it's a crisis, right? And so it's action oriented. So you're going to end up on a ventilator or you're going to end up in the ICU. Um, and so we want to avoid, because so many people say, like we said at the beginning, yeah. um, I wish I had known, or I yeah. wish I had made a different decision or family members say, I wish I knew what this loved one of mine would have yeah. wanted. I fear I've made the wrong decision and it's too difficult for me to, to say, stop the treatment. It, it, it weighs heavily on people's shoulders. You've taken on a massive um, mess actually, because you're right. Same with Canada, Claire. So don't feel bad about the UK. Well, that's why I absolutely love uh, your work with you and Sienna, because I'm coming at this from a different angle now. I can't, I can't influence the forms. I can't influence this huge system. So if people understand that it's there, it's there for them to use and go to their GPs demanding advanced care planning, asking to have it with the, with the framework that you set out so beautifully, the, the framework that you suggest isn't a medical framework. This is something that everybody can use. So I wonder if the shift will happen when more and more people go to the GP and Interesting, I, I work with clients. Um, I, I'm working with a, a young couple at the moment who live um, towards the north of England. I live in the south. And they're trying to do their advanced care planning, have been to their GP who just looked blankly at them. So they were connected to me via, via Twitter. So people are going to the GPs who still don't quite know what to do sometimes because it is so complicated. But I think if we can raise awareness, um, I often like to say that advanced care planning is a professional responsibility but a public right if we can get people saying look I'd like you to help with my advanced care planning maybe that will be the impetus that we need maybe yeah I think that's why we we're so excited to talk with you because you, you it, it, there is a sort of a, pub, a public perception issue just yeah. like with palliative care yeah. um, advanced care planning people the public sort of misunderstands what it is and I love the stuff that you put out um, to clarify or better hone in on the key elements. So you've sort of deconstructed it mm -hmm. into what are the uh, the pieces. And I love your metaphor of the house um, of, because that simplifies it. Maybe you can share that with the listeners of just the, what are the key elements? Like what is advanced care planning? Because people think it is filling out the boxes. Yeah, I can give you if you, if you want, want to put it in the show notes. But um, if you take the image of a house, it's exactly how I've described. If you imagine the foundations for a house, the foundations for advanced care planning is simply what matters most to you. And then if you think, uh, if you hold the image of a house in your head and think of the different windows, they're the components of advanced care planning. So the things, um, an advanced statement of wishes and preferences is one window. And then yes, you can open those windows, you can open those curtains and go through and complete the forms. But if you just know that there's a window, that's good enough. The next window, if you like to imagine, is the things that you don't want um, an advanced decision to refuse treatment. And again, if if members of the public just know that that window exists, whichever county, whichever province, wherever they live, they can tap through, open the curtains, and, and get the right form. Um, the other window, if you keep if we keep the imagery, is of legacy. Lots of people will think of a will, um, but I've interviewed some really incredible and gifted people about uh, memorial jewellery or hand casts or thinking about um, uh, leaving 
all of the senses that people can remember, potentially writing letters to people and hugely important um, digital legacy as well. So that's, I'm working on my digital legacy. I'm making steps with that. How many of us have got a dig digital legacy plan? Um, so they're all the different elements. And of course, who would speak for you? Proxy decision maker would be those four windows. So if we imagine the foundations, the four windows encapsulated under the, that one roof. And I like to say that if you then imagine trouble comes knocking on your door, you can open the door and you're ready, as Sammy says, we can answer anything because we've got everything set up and ready. And then you can continue the metaphor. You hope for the best, you prepare for the worst. You've got a sun image, you've got a rain cloud image as well. Mm. So that really simple image, it's taken me probably two and a half years to come up with. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I like about, it. I yeah, like it. Getting, and it's getting your house in order, right? It's sort of getting your house getting, in order. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes I'm, sense to me. I'm chuckling because um, I love that um, imagery. Uh, but I'm thinking the trouble doesn't normally knock. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Help me with my imagery. It took me two and a half years for that. So no, I love it, and I didn't want it. I didn't want to ruin your vibe. But that's funny. <laughs> I'll work on it. No, I love it. And you know, there's spring cleaning, and every year you, I like you know, people that. read. So every year it's a nice opportunity to refresh or, you know, sometimes you redecorate, something happens and you want to change. Like that's, that's normal and, oh, I and like healthy. That. So, yeah. yeah. And stuff changes. So I think getting your house in order is a very accessible way. So that's one of the exciting things Claire, uh, that I just wanted to say that, you know, for ourselves, like people think the waiting room revolution is this podcast and it's Sammy and me, but we have over time realized it is about going public facing. It is about educating the public, but not just about end of life care. It's about what to do early in the disease illness. Yeah. So that's exactly what you're doing. Um, that or can before, make people... or before yeah. you get an illness is absolutely. even more upstream than we are, right? Yeah, great point. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the revolution. And so it's not even just join us. You are already a, a card carrying yeah. member without even knowing it. And so welcome. That's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, we just so admire your work and you mm -hmm. are in the umbrella. When we think of, of our future talks where we're like, who are the people who are doing the work of the revolution? You're square yeah. in the middle. Yeah. Um, so For it's, sure. and that's why there's such a spirit because it took us a while to really understand like, what is it that it's because a lot of people focus on either educating clinicians, like explaining ACP to clinicians. And we've been in rooms like that. And that's important, but it's the public who has a right to this information. And if they could take mm -hmm. charge and ask the questions, um, so. it's their experience. They're the ones who have the most at stake, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. And um, we need to take this apart. And you've said it, both of you have said it in our discussion mm -hmm. just now, we need to move it away from death and dying because mm -hmm. there's a perception that is, it is to do with death and dying. Yeah. And yeah. on a, a really practical note, to do a lasting power of attorney in, in England at the moment it takes 20 weeks. It takes 20 weeks from when you send off that form to when it's registered. Mm. And 77% of the public think that you can do a lasting power of attorney when you want one, but you've got that 20 week lag apart from the time it takes to, to construct, to draft, to sign it as well. Mm. So this isn't something that happens at the end. And as you say, all, all those decisions um, and your values, they influence the care and the treatment you have throughout your whole illness journey. And mm -hmm. you mentioned about healthcare campaigns as well. How fantastic. So when we have our um, our breast screening when we have prostate whatever we have mm. how fantastic would it be oh what have you done for your advanced care planning is there anything we need mm. to talk about you know one of the things that we've realized with the revolution is when we go public facing and we and we're hoping that patients will ask different questions of their clinicians we realize we also have to now 
sort of go back and do education of clinicians a little bit differently because they're seeing this information in a new way and maybe more plain language. And they're kind of stuck to sort of, how do I answer this when patients say, this is what matters to me. And so what are we going to, how do we use this? They haven't really thought of things in this way. In the same way, when we ask patients to ask about zoom out, uh, what's the beginning, middle, late, and what decisions will I make along the way? We need to also give confidence to clinicians that they actually know this information and need to just position what they know in a slightly different way. So I wonder if um, in your future work, besides the house framework for patients, if you think um, there's a piece of your work that will, ha will have to be the clinicians understanding how to use this house metaphor and, and what matters to you in a different, just, it's the same information, but in a different yeah. way, but they're not, you know, they're seeing it in a, um, differently. Yeah, I'm split when I answer that question, if I'm honest, because there's a part of me that wants to say we're all members of the public. We're all sons, daughters, mums, sisters. And there's a part of me that doesn't want that divide, because I think if we're normalising it, we're normalising it for everybody. So, yes, part of me wants to say yes. Um, and the onus is on clinicians to find out the forms to make that framework work, if that makes sense. Yeah. But there's a part of me that's scared to create a divide to say, well, this is for members of the public. And this is for healthcare professionals. So yes, there is a degree of work. We need to know how to do access what you've got in your local area. So I suppose it's tweaking that house. So I'll stick with the analogy, but it'll be windows and windows behind. They'll be opening more windows rather than drawing a new house, I think. Yeah, you know what? I think the analogy there is that the clinicians uh, are supposed to be like the real estate agents. Like they have to know how to make this house to, to talk about it for their local area, right? But they don't... Um, they need to be able to show and explain how this uh, how this relates in their local context. Really, that's their goal. Their goal is as the coach to show them the rooms and what is, what forms are relevant in this area and what you know. Um, but uh, so it isn't that different. It's a really good answer, actually. I think you're right that um, in a perfect world we didn't we don't need to overcomplicate yeah. this. This is what is makes it simple. Is let's just talk about what you already know and and. Yeah. Um, Maybe sometimes a different way of, of talking about it makes it easier to act, it makes it more accessible. That's the point, I think. Well, it's like at the bank when you see the yeah. bank tellers. I don't go to the bank anymore, but when I used to stand in line at the bank, they wear buttons sometimes. Ask me about your mortgage or do you want to plan for retirement? You know what I mean? They're, why can't all healthcare providers wear a button that says, have you engaged or ask me about advanced care planning? Um, <laughs> you know, in Canada, by the way, Claire, um, we, you don't need to have uh, your, um, if you want to assign someone your substitute okay. decision maker power of attorney for personal care, in Ontario, you don't need to have a lawyer do that and you don't need to have it notarized, but it needs to follow a certain way of writing it and needs to be witnessed. Mm -hmm. And we have taken away those barriers so that people can do it themselves. There are templates online for yeah. people. So this is again where, you know, countries, places yeah. differ. Um, and so you can, I could essentially do um, a power of attorney right now uh, for someone yeah. Um in my family, if I wanted to assign my daughter, uh, I could download a form, fill it out, have it witnessed, and it's binding. And so we, there's there's no time yeah. lag. But still, but to your point was really that 
this whole process of figuring out who you are, what you value, um, what forms need to be signed, you know, what window do you need to open up, uh, takes time. So these things are not for, um, crisis reactive, um, no one's going to do this justice in a pickle. So all the more reason why you reinforce, reinforce, reinforce that this is done in a calm, timely manner when you're well. So if I may, I'd like to share and go back to something that Sammy's been talking about. And this really shows advanced care planning um, way, way, way upstreaming, I think you'd argue. So um, this is relating to the, the lady I spoke about slightly earlier in our discussion, Sian, and her daughter called Fee, um, she was just 14, and had a discussion about organ donation at school. And that's great. I love the thought that organ donation is being discussed in school. That's one element of advanced care planning. So at just 14, Fee had um, an advanced care planning discussion with her mum. If anything was happened to me, and who thinks that at 14, if anything was to happen to me, I would like to be on the organ donor, organ donor register. And incredibly sadly, Fee was involved in a catastrophic accident aged just 17. And um, it was my absolute pleasure, privilege and honour to interview Fee's mum. And she, she wanted to be on the podcast and she wanted to share Fee's journey. And Fee, because of that conversation, Fee went on to... Um, donate I think it was five organs to five other people so when we talk about advanced care planning having an organ donor conversation at 14 in a fit and healthy young girl that's advanced care planning and that's the difference it made and out of that horrendous situation Fee's legacy continues she she, um, Fee's foundation has been set up as well so it's an extreme example, Sian, but it, it does go to show that this is this is part of life. This isn't to do with when you become a certain age. This matters to us all and this matters to us now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we were earlier talking about um, when you don't plan, if you don't think ahead. And I wonder, you know, in, in your clinical work or even in the podcast, like I think I feel like you know, I'm a planner, but I know yeah. a lot of day to day people who mm-hmm. really don't want to think about the future. And even if you ask they really are concerned, they're worried to think about too far because, well, frankly, they're very busy dealing with the current mm-hmm. and there's a lot of complexities. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, proponents of a palliative care approach will say, well, if you don't, if you only reach out when you're already overwhelmed mm-hmm. and, you know, what I, we call drowning, uh, it's too late. And yet it, there's this time. So I guess I'm just curious, um, how do you, what are your strategies for approaching people who are, are more day to day and, and, because I, I don't think it's that they don't understand the value of, of, of planning. It's that they're just, they don't really know what they don't know, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I don't know. How do you deal with that in your, when, when you're with your work with as a coach and with other families and patients who are, yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's a, a great point because a lot of people um, could be scared or put off. And we've tried to check called advanced care planning, different things in attempt to, but, but none of it works. So my strategy there would be almost to forget the forms, forget the paperwork. You know, that's a, that, they're the secondary bits. They're the coat hangers, if you like. So my strategy there would be really, really simple. Um, what matters most to you? What, what, what brings your life joy? What, what's important in your life? What do you hope to continue? Um, also work by um, 
Professor Max Harvey Trichnikov as well, when you're looking at dignity therapy and person-centered care, finding out the thing, the thing that is most important to a person, um, we, we can't ever presume or assume to know. So ask what matters most. There's, we've mm. got the incredible What Matters Most campaign as well, that international campaign. So yeah, that, that would be my strategy. Forget the forms, yeah. find out what matters most to a person. Are there any podcast guests that you can think about that maybe illustrate this idea that these conversations are powerful and don't only, they aren't only about, you know, the treatment decision to be made. There are actually a lot of in-between conversations that, and meaning making that can yeah. really affect people's quality of life yeah. for the family or for the patient. Yeah. Um, if, if I'd like to reflect on, on a podcast guest, um, it would be the incredible Joe Armstrong, um, whose husband Barry um, had a glioblastoma and they had two young sons as well. So her advanced care planning, she had the advantage of um, being a physiotherapist, senior physiotherapist. So knowing a bit of healthcare from the inside. And she spoke about all the things that they were able to do as a family because of advanced care planning. And she spoke about the early intervention advanced care planning. So there wasn't this sudden transference to palliative care, very much what you and Sammy talk about. There wasn't a transference to palliative care. It was a side-by-side -side approach because she fought for it. So she talks about some incredible time that was spent with the husband at home, adapting the furniture, getting the care in place. And um, her husband, Barry, was a humanitarian aid worker. So part of their advanced care planning was to enable him to receive an award at home that he was too unwell to go and receive. So that's that's a completely non-medical example of advanced care planning. Yeah, no, it's, I, I think that's a, it's amazing. And I've listened to your podcast, so many great guests. Um, you know, this is, this is, a, this is just something on my mind. And I sometimes, you know, we, we, we talk to guests because we want to learn, but I wonder if you've seen this sort of common situation where sometimes, well, one of the things that has come out is the tension be between, maybe it's not tension is the wrong word, but there are different ways of decision-making. So in maybe in North American culture, it's more predominant that it's, we ask what the patient wants, but in other cultures, it is a family decision. And there are, you know, even the patient might say, well, I do what's best for the family. You know, there's per someone in the family and my, my three kids or my, my two kids, like they will decide what's best. Actually, that's the situation in my family. My father has said, if, you know, who will speak for him is me and my brother. Um, we have equal say. And so, you know, we have that shared responsibility. So it's really, a. I don't know if, if, um, if that's common in the UK that this family, the family dynamics are really what's driving the decision um, rather than personal autonomy. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm thinking back many years now to many families that I've met in the hospice as well. And I think you touch upon a great point as well. And that's respecting different cultures, different faiths and different beliefs. And there are some cultures that to talk about a situation will invoke that situation. So it's wrong to impose what we think is the right way to do it. So I think what we're talking about is learning, learning from other people, respecting other people's cultures, faiths and beliefs and working within their systems, finding out the barriers that have been created to enable them to access what they need to access to get the care they need. Um, there's some great work by the No Barriers Here team. I think you've come across them in the No Barriers Here team in the UK. Do some incredible work um, across cultures. And I, I would really turn to them for some superb work. They started with learning disabilities 
um, mm. have moved across cultures as well. So some great work um, I found yeah. from there. So Claire, here's something that I've seen in many cultures, and I want your opinion. It's often that the caregiver puts their needs last and feels like being a good caregiver means in some ways being a martyr, for lack of a better word. And so when they don't have full information about what to prepare for, they end up getting unwell themselves and suffering their own parallel illness journey, especially if an advanced care plan hasn't been done to know what patients want and don't want. And I'm just curious, do you see that in the UK too? So I, I think what you're asking, and, and I'm, I use it, and I think you use this phrase, the chapters of an illness. So if we could explain to people the chapters of an illness, and you had an incredible um, cardio, um, cardio, cardiac physician on, on one of your guests, and she spoke about the beginning, middle, and end stage of cardiac disease. So I think da we have Daisy, a response, yeah. Daisy, we have a responsibility yeah. to share. We do know beginning, middle, end stages of disease. And we do have the right, I think, to share that with people as well. And when you talk about, you, you coined the phrase, the martyr position as well. Um, if, if we can lay out, if we can draw, if we can paint the picture of what's to come, build the support around. So um, there are some incredible data in the UK. If, if somebody is wishing to be at home, the vast majority of care will be provided by the family, by the immediate caregivers. It won't be provided by professionals in the vast majority of cases. And unless you plan, unless you prepare, unless you think ahead and get that support in, that one person isn't going to carry it all, so that plan will fail. So the importance of talking and planning to get the social structure and help, the social structure around somebody to, to help and carry that caregiver through. Yeah. We got there. <laughs> yes, we did. No, that was a great answer. And I wonder if you often see people jumping to an action plan, like they're trying to figure out, they're trying to navigate the system and come up with the steps of what to do rather than taking the step back of going what matters most and the values that drive. Does that, is that, I don't know, a misconception or is that the missing link to, to, um, to doing it right? I think in some ways that's a really sad question and a difficult question for me to answer, but I'm going to answer very truthfully. And what I find um, more and more, and, and this is in my professional work, clinically through hospitals and since I've been independent as well is we talk about steps as if those steps are going to happen to access the steps but I find there's a gulf between somebody deteriorating and then their wishes being met and those steps don't even start so I'll have conversations with somebody I don't know for example in the park and they'll say Claire um, my, my dad's been in a hospital now for three months after his fall and he's really, really frail. And I know they're trying to rehabilitate him, but he was having multiple falls before he went into hospital. And I know that he wants to be with mum and I know she wants to care for him, um, but they say they're getting him better. So the getting better, the getting better, the getting better, the getting better stories will continue. So what I'd like to say is, yeah, we then start the steps, but until we have the conversation and we recognize that somebody's poorly enough, then we don't take those steps to have. So I think that's a very honest but sad answer to your question. And I also re realise um, when I was describing the house to you and Sammy, I forgot one window and I'm slightly embarrassed because it's an important window. So I described those four components uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and I can draw it. And I, and 
I thought I you nailed didn't... a four. Yeah, you... no, no, no. I nailed the four, but that. there's a little attic window that I didn't describe, and that's in oh. my picture. And how on earth I didn't mention that when you asked okay. me? Okay, no, so let's add it now. Let's think of those four components. There is that other window at the top, which is end of life care. And in the UK, we talk about end of life being the last year of somebody's life. Um, we talk about potentially the last year, the last month and the last days of life. And too often care is, is crammed into the last days of life. So that example I was giving you, walking with somebody in the park, we'd know for a year plus ahead that that person is entering a frail. We'd know for a year that they're entering a trajectory, a downward trajectory. We'd know for months when that person was in hospital. We know for months following the fall. And then it gets to days and there's no plan. So those steps you said, and this is a really long convoluted answer, what I find time and time and time again is that we don't get to the point we've had in those steps. The person could potentially die at home or we have a sudden panic, a sudden pickle to use Sammy's word and the wishes aren't met. So that that's what I've come across far too often. Yeah, no, I totally get it. You know what? I think your resources are amazing and they're all available on your website, which is speakforme.co.uk. And I love the house analogy for advanced care planning. I think it's just brilliant. So if you don't already know, your work is 100% a fit with the waiting room revolution for sure. So I'm really pleased to have lots of calls from um, there are different ways that the resource. So I've, I've built a huge lot of resource for the um, website, Sian. So I'm really pleased to find the different ways that it's being used. So one example I'd love to share is a GP practice have recently contacted me to say, um, do I mind if they put some of the info from, the, from my website onto those lovely big television screens they have in a GP practice? So I would um, welcome people to use any of the free resource that I've got on my website, um, access it, use it, um, ask me questions. If anybody wants to ask me a question, that could form the next blog. So I'd like to share that. Love it. People can contact you directly through that website um, to ask for your individual services, but do they have to be from the UK or do you work in Scotland? Do you work across the EU? I work across the globe. So I... As, as it's a joy to talk to you in Canada from the UK today, um, anywhere. I love connecting with people. I love learning from people. So yeah, I welcome anybody from anywhere, either for a conversation or if I can help, I can help. Claire, it has been so wonderful talking with you. Claire, you know what? You are the CEO of our revolution. <laughs> it's been an absolute honor. Thank you both so much. And thank you for everything that you've taught me. Thank you for inviting me today. I look forward to continuing to join the revolution with you both you're joined. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsap.